Hi there, this is Sarah Cliff from Vox. Once you're done listening to The Divided States of Women, I have another podcast suggestion for you. It's called The Impact, and every week we have stories about real people. I got pregnant two months after I graduated high school. It was not planned. <laughs> we look at the policies that shape those people's lives. Too often here in D.C., we stop talking about laws after they pass. But on The Impact, we will follow those policies out into the real world where all of us live. It's just fantastic. It's just great. Subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or whatever podcast app you like the most. Welcome back to Divided States of Women. I'm Liz Plank. I'm Heatha Herzog. Heatha, it is the one-year anniversary of uh, something called the 2016 election. election. Uh, and as Ezra Klein, the editor-at-large of Vox.com, says, this is not the part that history books will skip. We are truly living in history. Um and so we are going to be speaking to Anna North, a reporter at Vox.com, who went to the women's convention where she spoke to women who have been uh, signaling their interest to run in unprecedented numbers Amazing. since the election. Um, and another thing that I think we should really be paying attention to, and I feel like we've been getting a lot of since the 2016 election results sort of came in and, and before that, is toxic masculinity. Yes. Do you agree? Well, I think we've always been having toxic yes. masculinity being shot at our brains uh -huh. and everywhere else at our bodies. Mm -hmm. I think just in the last year, though, we've been more hyper aware of it and can talk about it more to like such different degrees. Right. Uh, I don't know if it's been exacerbated from social media, which is a good thing. But now it's really out in the open. Yeah, it's 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 so out in the open that it's in the White House. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, like it is in the White House. Um, so obviously, Donald Trump um, is, in my opinion, the poster child for toxic masculinity. Oh, you um, mean Harvey he, Weinstein isn't for Yeah, him? yeah. Also, he's the Harvey Weinstein of what the global world leaders. Um, <laughs> he's white, rich, straight. Uh, sexually harasses women, uh, allegedly, quote-unquote, um, and has no consequences to his behavior. He's arrogant. He never admits to any mistakes. He believes that being strong is not showing that you can learn from anyone or anything, pretending like you know everything and how to fix every issue. Basically, every don't. European leader since <sighs> in the last, like, 30 years, you're basically describing them. But Ang exception of Angela Merkel. With the exception of Who Angela Merkel. He refused Merkel. to shake her hand. Right. I mean, maybe they've, they've, sh but they've shook hands Berlusconi. Andrew Sarkozy was mm. a little bit like that. I mm. mean, basically, I mean, look at, for the most part, every European political leader. And, you know, I'm going to go so far, even like uh, a Modi in India is still uh, exuding mm. toxic masculinity. I'm probably going to get in trouble by no, the Indian community but, by saying that. But but I think it's interesting that the, it does fit. There is a, a profile of this type of person. Right. And um, a lot of men who exhibit these qualities are in leadership positions, not just in Hollywood, not just in, you know, Silicon Valley or other industries, but also in our, you know, in the political world, whereas 
and, and it's a very important world because it's the world that makes all the decisions about our lives. Um, and so it's very important to sort of question uh, this idea of what a good leader or a strong leader or a strong man looks like. Um, and that's what we're going to be doing today with one of my favorite people, Wade Davis. Um, Wade Davis is the first and only diversity consultant for the NFL. He used to be a football player and now he's a writer, speaker, activist, like the kind of person that their job is being themselves because they're so awesome. Right. Like people it, just pay you to be yourself because and, you're great. And Wade Davis is one of the first NFL players to come out as openly gay, which right. allows him to do all of this amazing stuff right. as a speaker, as a diversity counselor. Mm. And this was back in 2012, which doesn't feel like a long time ago, but in like gay acceptance years um, and and LGBTQ awareness is 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 you know we were not where we are now. Oh no! In, I mean, in terms of that, the um, whole game changed. Yeah. I mean, Couple no pun intended. Yes, but in the last four years for LGBTQ rights. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So um, uh, I'm so excited to speak with him. Let's take a listen to our interview. So you talk to men all the time about toxic masculinity. How do you define it? I actually define it as patriarchal masculinity um, because toxic feels small, whereas patriarchy mm-hmm. is a full system where um, men benefit from, we operate in, we we bathe in. We um, so I define it as a system where men are trying to uh, to dominate other people who don't show up in the world in ways that they have been stereotypically taught to believe it's way that only men should show up as. And I actually think that you cannot define masculinity because anytime you define it, you there are going to be men who don't fit into that small box. So it will always leave out other people to. To, to to render them vulnerable, right? right. So I, I think it's always masculinities, right? Mm. Um, with S's and lots of S's. And I try to get to get men to understand why that's really important. Right. And with with the recent stories around Harvey Weinstein, I mean, Mark Hall, I mean, you can't even, I can't, it would take a full hour to name all of the Just men. Just say everybody almost, <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So many men in so many industries. Um, has it been easier to have those conversations with men? Yes and no. Um, there have been more men, friends of mine, who have wanted to engage me in that conversation. Um, there have been more men who who um, who will see me on Twitter, right, mm-hmm. and who will send me a DM or something. And they either call me like a effing piece of crap or, oh, wow. or they'll be like, thank you for that nuance. Like, I didn't get it. You know, right. so it's a it's it's an and both and neither make me feel good or bad. It just is. But why do men feel defensive when so as a woman, yeah. we talk about um, challenging what we've been taught as women, gender stereotypes. We're told to lean in. We're told to be more confident. We're told to, right, to do lean the emotional into, labor. Exactly. Yeah. Of thinking about, hmm, OK, I grew up being told this is what a, a girl does or this is what a woman does. And I can challenge that. Why um, is it? hard for for men to have that conversations about their own gender because why would you challenge a system that benefits you right you know um men they may not be able to verbalize it but i think that we know inherently that the world is set up to benefit us so why would we ever want to interrogate that why would we Mm. want to think about that we just want to bathe in it and just go no like but you're okay like you're alive you know Mm. what i mean and 
I find myself having that discussion with men often. I was um, in the car coming back from from football practice with uh, with three other friends of mine, and we were talking about rape culture. And two of the guys that they were like, "Yeah, you know, but I know a guy who was, you know, accused of rape, blah blah blah. And he didn't do it." And another guy who was driving told the exact same same story. We all know a guy. Yeah. There's always a guy, and right? I got that quiet. one story. And I said, "You know what? You know, one in four women are going to be survivors of sexual assault." And you motherfuckers don't know any of them. <laughs> I mean, like, you don't know one of them. Like, I just don't understand right. it. And I told them, I said, it's, it seems easy for us to have a story, one story, that, that we kind of rest in and hold on to so tight to discount all of the stories that women have told. And I said, but yet you will tell me that you're a good guy. And I think that's the other piece of it that uh, Michael... Uh, uh, Denzel Smith, he wrote about so so brilliantly mm-hmm. that men have to give up this idea that we're good guys. Mm-hmm. As as long as we want to rest in this fact that we're a good guy, then we can absolve ourselves of any responsibility for anything else that any other guy does. And that's not the point about whether you're a good guy or a bad guy, is that you're a human being mm-hmm. and that you were raised in in this country to believe certain things that are, that are right for men to do and wrong for, for, for women. To do, and as long as you keep resting in that, as long as you don't interrogate that, as long as you allow women to do the emotional labor, as Brittany Cooper talks about, we will never ever understand what it means to show up in the world as a woman, and we will never do the work to to understand how do we kind of make that labor equal. Mm. So it's 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 not all up on you to do the writing and the thinking and the and the hashtagging and the protesting and the and the policy making. Like we should be doing half of that work too. How are you able to pierce through men when you speak to them, right? How do you get beyond the defensiveness? Do you have examples of, you know? Yeah, so when I'm, you know, in the sports space, right, um, I'm often talking to men about LGBT equality, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And what I do is, one, I try to own my shit, own the (laughs) fact that I'm a gay man, but I also trafficked in patriarchy and homophobia, right? Mm -hmm. That I spent a lot of my high school and college years using the term faggot, right? right? One, for them to see that I'm not this godlike figure who's just descended down in this room today that is here to cleanse them. No, hey, I am one of you. I just got here in this feminist world yesterday, basically. So I'm here with you. So so don't think that I'm here to judge you because that's not what my job is to do. My job is to also not tell you that you're right or wrong. My job is to not to collude with you and hold you accountable in those spaces, but to also provide the conditions for you to talk. Right. Mm-hmm. If if we don't create the space for men to, as Bell Hook says, take the stand in a circumstance of risk to actually say like what they're actually thinking, feeling then how can we ever find points of connection to grab them and pull them kicking and screaming often toward this space where they can openly identify as a feminist, right? So I've got to get them talking. I've got to also, um, how would I say, um, as I said earlier, i got to share my story too. Like I, I need them to connect with, with me in certain ways that they may not have connected with another man uh, uh, before. And i got to be consistent and I got to keep going back, right? I, I have to allow them to say some really screwed up stuff, hold them accountable, try to offer them a different pers- perspective, mm-hmm. but not make it so combative that the conversation ends. And, and that's really hard work, but I choose to actually do that, right? So I've been, you know, in the high school locker room where the kid will say, you know, I don't believe in this gay shit, right? And then I'll just go, tell me more. 
right? In that moment, just say, wow. tell me more, right? Because what what you learn is a couple of things. One, you learn that this kid probably never thought about this before. He's just saying something that he heard some, someone else say. Two, you'll learn more about this person's history. And then I can find points of connections, right? So if he says, oh, well, you, you know, where gay people are all homo, or they are they're pedophilia. I mean, they're, they're pedi- pedophiles. Yeah, they're yeah. pedophiles, right? And then I'll go, that's interesting. Like, where'd you learn that at? Right? Mm-hmm. Just keep asking specific questions. And I try my hardest to never ask a why question. A why question is laced in judgment. So I'll ask what, how, mm-hmm. you know, just to pull more out. So they actually have to be much more specific right. in what they're saying. Instead of me asking, well, why do you think that? Then now they get on the, on defensive. the, the, the defensive. Yeah, so right. I'm really trying to get men to talk. Right. And then to keep the conversation going. So when I come back in three weeks or four weeks or, or even in a couple of months, we can start there. And then I've also had had time to think, OK, how do I now pull him a little bit further along in this conversation? How do I make sure that he sees that I am not here to judge them? Because I'm in no space to stand in moral judgment of anybody. Right. right. But you we've we've got to figure out. I've got to figure out how to engage them in conversation. And I think that that's the work of men like myself who we need to do. Because unfortunately, whenever you're out speaking, I'm sure there are very few men in, in, in the audience, right? So it's my job to take what, what you've taught me, to give you credit for what you've taught me, and then actually say in those spaces, hey, guys, let's have this conversation that you've been dying to really have amongst your other friends. Have it with someone else. Right. And in so many ways, talking, talking about your feelings, admitting your mistakes or admitting that you might not know everything kind of goes counter to everything that we t- teach men. What's, what's fascinating is that guys will do that when you've created the conditions for them to feel like they're not doing it, right? Like men love to say, oh, women are really em- em- emotional. I'm like, well, most domestic abusers are men, and that's an emotional <laughs> response. So right. actually, you're highly emotional, right? right? right. But they don't want to hear that. So you, you have to, unfortunately, couch your language in, in such a way where they can open up and start to be honest. Mm. Interesting. Um, and how does Donald Trump play into this? <laughs> I mean, has Donald Trump made it easier to have these conversations? Has he made it harder? He's such a sort of the poster child for— um, He made it easier for me to have the discussion with, with athletes, mm-hmm. actually, because of, of the whole locker room talk, right? There were a lot of yeah. athletes who were like, nah, like, this is not who we are, right? right? And, and my question is, well, who are you? You know, well, mm. who are you and what types of conversations are you having in your locker room? And what are you doing when a player uses sexist or homophobic language? Like, how are you showing up in those moments, right? So you may like to say that the locker room is an X, X Y, or Z, but show me how that, that shows up practically. I think for um, some of my more moderate or conservative friends, uh, Donald Trump has, has given them license. Mm. To say a lot of stuff like, oh, well, you don't even know what's happening in the middle of America. You think of us as flyover states. And I was like, well, kind of grew up in Colorado. <laughs> yeah, you know, went to college in Utah. You know, so I'm, uh, you yeah. know, so yeah. So it's, they make um, assumptions. Yeah, right. You? So, um, and I won't lie to you. I'm enjoying the conversations, honestly and truly. I It may be because I'm deeply in love right, right now that um, that I don't get combative with, with people. I'm just like, tell me more. Okay. So, you know, what, how, you know, just asking those types of questions so people know that they're not rattling me. Um, but I want to be clear is like everyone shouldn't have to do that work. I'm choosing to do that actual work. Right. 
do athletes come to you and say, you know, this locker room talk thing doesn't speak for me? How do they sort of approach that? Does it... Um, does Donald Trump's you know, prehistoric like version of manhood and, and, and masculinity sort of highlight issues that maybe men weren't aware of before? No. So I think what most and and this was literally like right after it happened, there right. were a lot of athletes who were just like, hey, man, like, you know that that's not us. Right. Mm. And I was just like, yeah, you know, but what would you like me to say about you? Mm. How actually are you showing up? Right. Um, I think that Donald Trump is giving men more of an opportunity to start to think more deeply about how they're showing up in the world towards right. women, right? I think that um, men are using more words like toxic masculinity and redefining manhood and all these you know, terms and words that um, weren't used before. The Donald, but I also worry that we're emptying them of their actual true meaning mm-hmm. and that we're not doing our work, right? Um, I believe that part of our work is to read literature written about women, by women, for mm-hmm. women, for us to really um, not be involved in benevolent forms of sexism. And I've been guilty yeah. of that too, right? Um, you know, I was, um, I'm going to be doing some work with the First Lady of, of New York City. Cool. And, um, and it was I was on the phone with my manager Stephanie, and I was all excited. I was like, "Yeah, I'm going to be doing some some work with the mayor's mm-hmm. wife," and she was like, "Who?" I was like, "Yes, the first lady of New York City." Yeah. You know, but even me, right? Like, I still patriarchy is so sinister, mm-hmm. right? So, you know, a, a friend of mine also so said, I, "I think it's true that all men, like myself included, should be on one day contracts when it comes to being feminist. That every day we should have to show up and prove to individuals like yourself that we are still on board, right. because it's so easy for us to get pats on the back from women, which y'all." Sh- shouldn't do that you know like we don't deserve a medal for doing stuff that we should be doing mm-hmm. right um and it's it's as, as kanye said and i should never quote kanye oh always um, quote kanye but he says it's hard <laughs> to be humble when you're standing on the jumbotron right and mm-hmm. i think it's really hard for individuals who are getting praise who are um getting all these accolades to stay to stay humble and i struggle with that too like there's no lie you know like it feels good that people think that my work is impactful but how do I stay humble? And I try to do that by surrounding myself with um, with women who right. will be like, you know, that shit was cool on Saturday, but what you going to do on Sunday? <laughs> what you going to do on Sunday, Wade? You know, that was a great speech. That was a great speech. Your right. intersectional talk is beautiful. Right. But tomorrow Sunday. Right. Yeah. It's obviously important to talk about the way that patriarchy and the way that toxic masculinity hurts women. How does toxic masculinity hurt men? It hurts men in almost the exact same ways. Um, So I'll speak from a personal standpoint. Uh, It hurt me because it never never taught me that being myself was a gift. Mm. It it never taught me that that standing alone without anyone else in my little circle was more of a sign Mm. of strength than actually following the, the actual crowd. It never taught me that I could be okay by myself. Like, that's kind of what it is. It's like all this group think. I'm actually reading this this book by Toni Morrison. It's called The Othering of Others, I believe it's called. Um, and it's so true. You know, it's so true how she's talking about that, that, um, that we need someone else to be the other 
in order for us to find out where 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 we're supposed to actually be. But but patriarchy doesn't teach men to be critical thinkers. Like I was never a critical thinker. I was someone who just followed what everyone else did, what everyone else said, because I wanted to be a part of that key core group. But I never found out who the hell I was. And I think you have a lot of men who are moving around this world who have no clue who they are, hmm. who have, who've, who've never thought about who, who they are. Or as Baldwin says, like, really, like, looked at that stranger inside. Like, there's a stranger in, inside of me that is so, so afraid, you know, so vulnerable, so compassionate. But all of those sides of me— um, a patriarchy never affirmed. And now that I'm, I'm allowed to tap into those things, you know, um, I feel much more alive. I feel myself, like, wanting to cry more. Mm. You know, like, wow, like, that got me a little emotional. Okay. You know, like, all of those things, I can feel them happening, whereas before there was a hardening, you know, that there was a side of me that, that didn't want to empathize, that didn't want to see um, the beauty in anything that didn't affirm who I was. Was there a part of you that just you weren't even in touch with? It, oh, was oh it sort God. of like learning to know yourself? That's I what guess. it is. You know, um, there, was, there was a part of me that wanted to kill the part of me that was gay and vulnerable and compassionate and all of those things, you know. And um, because that part of me was thought, the gay part of me was thought to never, ever to— that anyone would ever love it, that anyone would ever mm-hmm. respect it. And if and if you believe that about a part of yourself, you're going to do everything that you can to kill that part of yourself. And that's what I I spent, you know, from the time I was in 10th grade and, and until I was probably 28 trying to do that. And, and that's a long time. Right. And, you know, homophobia, the root of homophobia— It's sexism. It's sexism, oh, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. What's, so— What's interesting about that, right, is that there are so many gay men who, one, don't understand that. Two, are quiet on issues that involve women. Mm. They're so quiet that we believe that we can end homophobia just by focusing on LGBT equality or actually just gay men. Like, like we don't even talk about lesbians, about trans, about folks who are gender nonconforming. Like, we're so deeply focused on ourselves, right? And I, I think that that we're missing it, right? Um but it's also because we're in so much pain, you know, that we're still trafficking in, in, in patriarchal masculinity. And isn't the root of homophobia really sexism, truly? A, a hatred of what is feminine, a hatred of One, what is female, and men can't engage with anything that would resemble that. 100%. Um, I, it wasn't until I started reading a lot of feminist literature that I actually understood that. Mm. Because there was only a time in my life where I was only focused on what it meant to be gay. Right. And I couldn't look outside of that part of myself. I was like, God, being gay is so bad. It's so bad. Right. Mm -hmm. And then you start to connect the dots and and you start to go a little deeper. And then you start to read more. You start to read more books, like I said, by women. And you realize that, wow, like it's really the hatred of women that has spawned this hatred of of gay men or, as you said, anything feminine or or anything that's not the norm. right? Right. So so what's. So I, I have what's called, and I hate these terms, um, uh, gender performance privilege, mm-hmm. that people often read me as heterosexual, right? Um, and even after I tell them that I'm gay, I've been told, well, you gay, but you ain't no faggot. Oh, wow. Because the way that I show up in the world right. m- mimics that of your stereotypical heterosexual guy. But it's my responsibility in that moment 
to call that out right. it's, and to attempt to call them in and say, so what do you actually mean by that? Right. Just just to ask a question, That's, you know, to see yeah. if that person can actually articulate, even go a little deeper, because if you get them to do that, they know more than they knew before I asked the question. Right. You know, and I'm trying to get guys to just really do that excavation work that causes you to go deeper, that causes you to go within. So it's just about asking a question, right? No, it's not just about that. No, but I, I do love your approach because it, you know, to to to, to your earlier point, you're not asking why. Do you, it's not a personal attack on the person. You're just making it a bit about the thing that the the statement. Yeah. And you're isolating it, and you're not even telling them they're wrong. You're you're just asking them how do you know that? Exactly. Which is a you know a dis, it, it sort of disarms um, the emotional aspect of calling out people, which you know. I, I know it's hard for men to do it to with other men, and I find myself, you know, that it's hard for me to do it with 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 men too. Sometimes men th- say things to me that are offensive, and I'll just kind of smile because I just don't want to deal with yeah. it. And or white people in white, you know, crowds, and we all experience this moment where we wish we w- would have said something, but we just didn't know what to say. And so asking a question, a what th- or how question? Yeah, exactly. Not yeah, a yeah, why. Yeah. Is and and it's hard when. When your immediate response is to go, are you fucking crazy? Yeah, you know, right. like you really want to say that. But I have uh, been doing this work for a while, and I've reached a space in myself where rarely can someone trigger me. Oh wow! Rarely can someone trigger me. Um, and, and it's not that I'm perfect, but I have gotten to a space where I'll just take a little moment and go, "Tell me more about that. Like, like what about that? Mm. You know, how did you arrive?" At that point, because I actually want you to articulate to to me how you got there. Mm. I really do. And and I promise you, you will find most people start stuttering or stumbling over their words or they even start to get frustrated because they can't articulate this thought because they assumed that you were going to attack them. And you're asking them to basically explain the stereotype, right? Or explain that, like, why do you believe that? Uh, 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 And they're forced (laughs) to think about it, um, which is really... You know, and it and honestly and truly, I've learned this from doing trainings with 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 athletes or people in the corporate world. It's like if I can get you to talk, there's a chance mm. that we can both evolve and come out of the conversation better. Mm. But if we start going at each other, arguing, screaming, the conversation shuts down and both of us lose. Right. How would you like to see? You know, you you you've talked about how masculinity is defined by the other or by what men aren't. What would you like? to see men define themselves as? I would probably like for men to def- to define themselves for themselves. Mm-hmm. You know, um, wow, I just used some Audrey Lorde. Uh, but that's the truth, right? <laughs> you know, like, like you literally have to, I think, um, the more that I meditate, the more that I spend more time with me, the more that I read about people who aren't me, the more I see myself and everything around me. Mm. You know, more, and the more that I'm Ugh, able— that's so powerful. Yeah. Yeah, and the more that I'm able to connect with someone else, right? So I can find different points of connection with you, with with even someone who's a Trump voter, right? And and someone may not think that, that, that we should do that, right? But I actually believe that we're put on this earth to take care of each other, mm-hmm. right? And uh, and there's some people who you just can't, can't reach— on today, right? But that 
that doesn't mean that I can't try again. And I say this with intention, like, that is the work that I have chosen to do. Everybody can't do that work and shouldn't, right? Because sometimes it's just the pain is too real, you know, and I want to honor that. But for Wade, right, like, I'm just really— I'm really interested in trying to connect with people and try to get us to 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 ride on this journey cuz and I know where I came from. Like I know how many months, years, you know, I spent lying to myself. I spent lying to other people trying to be someone who I was not. And it feels nice to come closer to becoming who I really am, right? And I think that that's who we want to be. Like we just want to be ourselves, but we don't know what that looks like. Because we're just not taught how. And I think men are definitely not taught how to do that be- because we're not affirmed. Like, like no one rewards you for not being like your dad. Like, people will say, he's just like your daddy. You know what I mean? Like, no one rewards Johnny for being just like Johnny. Wow, wow Johnny, like, that's that's really cool of you, mm-hmm. you know? Or if if you see a kid, um, he's sitting on the couch and he puts his hands in his pants and you go, oh, that's what your dad used to do, right? Because we learn to mimic each other, but no one actually affirms I think it's men and women, right, to be themselves. At bottom, I think we are really trying to just be ourselves, but we don't know how because we're not taught to be critical thinkers. My partner is one of the most critical thinkers I ever imagined. I mean, like, he he questions everything. And it can be a, a little that annoying, sounds, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it can be annoying, right? But in moderations, I'm like, wow, like, I don't think, it, I don't, I don't think about the uh. world like that. It would be really nice if I did. Mm-hmm. You know, and and when I read, so the first uh, feminist book I, I I read was a feminist theory for margin and center. And Bell Hooks, she talks about slavery through the through the eyes of a woman, mm-hmm. right? And I never thought about how black women were slaves, but they also were raped, and they also had to carry the babies on their back, right? So my frame of reference for slavery was through a male lens. Most men think about the world through a male lens. Imagine how powerful we become if. And when we think about the world through the lenses of women, that's why I think it's really important that we educate ourselves. I think it's really important that we stop trying to be these good guys. I I think it's important that we divest and interested in being right, you know, because what if you're wrong? You know, and I think it's important, you know, that we do some emotional labor, that that we try to to um to ask really more intelligent questions, to to listen to, you know, I I tell this story often, and I get too much credit for it. Um, <laughs> I was uh, I was getting off the subway, and um, there was a woman getting off. And, and, and when I turned onto my street, it was about 1 o'clock in the morning. She was about as close as you and I are from each other, right? And she looked back at me, and I immediately knew yeah. fear. She's afraid, and she should be. I'm a man in 1 in the morning, right? So I sped up quick as I could, and I walked past her, right? Or I probably should have crossed the street, right? But there are things— that I can do if I've actually thought about the world through the eyes of a woman that will make the world safer, right? And that doesn't mean that women can't take care of themselves, but I'm also trying to just show up in the world better, yeah. right? And I, and I, Because I believe that there's so much distance between black and white, between male and female, between man and woman, between gay and straight. Like, if we can close that distance, then we can learn how to take care of each other. Right. And the difference between us is 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 not really bi- biologically we are we are more similar than we are different. And it's not yeah. real, right? Exactly. The it's dis- it's like, perception it's just, yeah. and it's experience, which you can experience. You know, put yourself in someone else's shoes, and then that's what we connect. need to just freaking read. Yeah. Okay. So read up, guys. That's yes. what that's what your homework is. Yes. Read a lot. Yeah. Read books yeah. about women, mm-hmm. by women, mm-hmm. and just read. And then, yeah. 
you won't even notice the shift, but mm-hmm. there is right. a shift, you know, that I've noticed. I just finished reading, um, I read it three times now, The Bluest Eye by Toni Morrison. The first time I read it, I missed it. <laughs> I was like, that was a good book. I read it again, I was like, oh, I almost missed it because Toni Morrison is just the greatest writer ever mm-hmm. put on this earth. But I, I would also recommend that men read the book twice. I know that, that that's a lot, but yeah. Thank you, Wade Davis. Thank you for having we me. Really, really appreciate you speaking with us. Oh, in your beautiful you little sweater <laughs> that people can't see, but I'm gonna hug it. I'm excited. Um, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you for sharing and thank you for coming in. Take care. Thanks. Isn't Wade Davis amazing? Yeah, I, I I think that you know he's been talking about toxic masculinity for a few years now, um, but his work is so everything that he has uh, been writing and 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 sort of speaking about is so relevant today. Um, we're lucky to have him. And I think when you have advocates of that are men mm-hmm. that are going out there and making a point to just open up the conversation, yeah. I think we're going to see real change that needs to happen. I mean, it's one thing to have us have these hashtags out there, hashtag me too, you know, uh, hashtag him though, him though. Mm -hmm. Uh, But when you finally have this group of men that will say, hey, you know what? We're not going to do this anymore. Led by people like Wade Davis. Totally. It's a good thing. This toxic masculinity is just shooting at us. It's, (laughs) oh, sorry. Um, Our executive producer, Nisha is what wants me to use a different term. Okay, like what? What about coming at okay. coming at no. us? <laughs> what? what about it, rearing its ugly <laughs> rearing its ugly head at us? That one works, right? <laughs> That's not phallic. I just think it's, you know what? It's a it's gender. This is a show about women recognizing that there are a lot of phallic things coming at us, whether it's in theory or in practice. It, I think is is a feminist act in itself. And now that I. Uh, now that we've spoken to Wade Davis, I will know how to protect myself from the toxic masculinity that is uh, inserting itself into my everyday life. Right. If you if you can't, what's that slogan about? Um, protect yourself before you wreck yourself. Ooh, I like that. Yeah. Yeah. Pro- oh, I'm going to change it. I mean, <laughs> it is. Our executive producer, Nishat, just told me to check yourself before oh. you wreck yourself. Oh, my gosh. Uh, she knows everything. Why am I so nerdy? Protect yourself. Mm. Protect <laughs> It's so dorky. Protect yourself before you wreck yourself. From, from toxic, toxic masculinity. masculinity. We out. Vox.com reporter Anna North recently attended the Women's Convention in Detroit put together by organizers of the Women's March to gear up for the 2018 midterm elections. She's here to tell us more about the women she met and how they were thinking about political activism. You spoke to a lot of women who are uh, thinking of running or who are actually running um, and who are sort of gearing up for the 2018 midterm elections. Can you tell us more about some of the women that you spoke to? Yeah, absolutely. So I talked to really a range of women from um, people who were just kind of thinking about maybe running one day to women who are definitely running um, in 2018. And actually, um, one of the women I talked to was Mallory McMorrow. Uh, She is running for state senate in Michigan, and she had some really interesting thoughts on uh, what she learned from the Clinton campaign. Qualifications don't win elections. I think we are in an era where 
personality really matters. You get a lot of people who are voting based on people they like. Uh, so that, that was kind of my biggest takeaway. And then also not leaning in too hard on the fact that we are running because we are women. So I think that um, really going back to the issues, why it's important that female candidates run and why it's important to people to vote for specific issues um, and not just you know saying we are a female candidate and that is why you should vote for us. Another woman I talked to uh, at the Women's Convention was Maureen Stapleton. Um, she has served in state office in the past, and um, she swore she would never run again, but in, after the 2016 election, she changed her mind. Um, and she had some interesting thoughts based on her experiences of working with female Democrats versus female Republicans. I found my Republican colleagues a little disappointing. While I like them personally, um, regardless of their party, they would stand and watch legislation promulgated into law that was bad for women, either because of religious beliefs or because, in some cases, one person told me, well, you know, Maureen, I'm just a gal, and gals don't necessarily get our way in our caucus. Well, then you continue to fight. You, you don't give up and go along with, um, and your vote should show that. I also talked to Stephanie Shriok. Uh, she is the president of Emily's List. Um, and she talked about some of the goals of Emily's List, which works to support uh, pro-choice Democratic women running for office. Um, for her, it's not so much about uh, women necessarily governing better than men. It's really about women getting representation that they still lack. There's a lot of great uh, men who are very good on policies related to, to women and families. What we're encouraging uh, women to think about is how how important it is to have their perspectives at the decision-making table. We, until we have at least half of the table, and I would argue we should make up for some time and maybe 60, 70 percent, a hundred's fine. Like, really, until we're there, though, in those kinds of numbers, where African-American women are at those tables, where Asian-American women are at those tables, when Muslim women, you, like, it, we're not making policies that represent the entire community of, you know, the entire community. You know, and then um, a lot of women who attended uh, this training sponsored by Emily's List, um, some of them were very set on running. Others were kind of at the training to learn tools, maybe support other people who are going to be candidates or maybe become candidates themselves. And what, what, what is the feeling, you know, with women who are thinking of running or, or women who are running? One of the things that I think the 2016 election did. If there is a silver lining for progressive women and 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 progressives, it's the idea that you know running for president used to be you know oh that's the thing you know that you do like no one really feels ever like they're ready to run for president, um, but it has become somehow you know sort of really achievable <laughs> or accessible uh, because of Donald Trump. Um, in your you know reporting and the women that you spoke to, do you get the sense that Donald Trump becoming president has not just made it easier for white men to become president, but for women, too, to think that they can hold that role? Yeah. I mean, there was definitely a sense um, kind of like, well, if this guy can do it, then why can't I do it? I certainly have as much experience as him. Um, actually, Charlotte Alter is another journalist who was at the at the convention. She did a great piece in Time about this and kind of, I think, had some good quotes that really speak to this notion of like, well, I might as well run now. Um, you know, and also I talked to folks who 
really talked specifically about not just Trump's win, but Clinton's loss and feeling like this was a candidate who was very qualified, had held, you know, she'd been the secretary of state. She really knew a lot about government. And um, if she couldn't win, um, a lot of women felt that says something really bad about sexism in this country. And it made them, rather than be discouraged and be like, well, I'm never going to run, it made them feel like I really have to run to try to combat this. Were women there that were interested in running talking about kind of the difficulties about raising money, uh, what they encounter on that? Definitely. So that that definitely came up, um, especially at the Emily's List training. Um, there was a lot of specific talk about, um, you know, how part of running for office is going to mean you're going to have to ask for money and you're going to have to ask for a lot of money. Um, and there was acknowledgement, too, that women's networks, when it co- comes to having money, might not be as deep, that they might not know as many deep-pocketed men, you know, for instance. And um, this could be, um, you know, the organizers mentioned, the organizers of the panel mentioned, um, could be an issue, especially in, um, you know, working-class communities and communities of color. There might not be, you know, these sources of wealth and, you know, rich friends that you could just tap for money. Um, so they talked about strategies and, um, you know, ways also of breaking down sort of stereotypes that, uh, women shouldn't be asking for things or that it's not, you know, that it's not polite to ask for money because you got to do that when you're running for office. Um, the other thing I'll say that was really interesting is, um, not at the convention itself, but afterwards, um, I talked to, uh, Sarah Chamberlain, who I believe is the president of the Republican Mainstream Partnership, um, So she works with Republican women who are running for Congress. Um, And she said, um, you know, they can also struggle with fundraising because most donors, Republican or Democrat, are male. Um, So she told kind of a funny, you know, little maxim that, um, you know, a woman walks into the room with some donors and she gets really grilled on all of her policies. She comes out with maybe $1,000. Man walks into the same room. They chat about the World Series for five minutes. He walks out with twenty five hundred bucks. Um, so that's an ongoing concern, I think, for women on both sides of the aisle. Right, and 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 I think you touch on such an important topic, which is just the culture. Right, it's it's not just about money and 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 about access to opportunities. It's also you know politics as a cultural you know world that really does still leave out women and 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 that's a big 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 boys club um you know recently in the news we've heard about you know women who are uh, you know in congress or in the senate who are coming forward with allegations of sexual harassment um Jackie Spear was the first one to sort of come out and and talk about the fact that reporting these um you know, uh, this kind of harassment is actually really, really, really hard. Uh, and the, the system is really designed to protect uh, the abusers. Um, what, did did that come up at all? You know, and, 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 and even in, in these meetings where women are meeting with donors, as we know in Silicon Valley or in other fields, um, women are put into difficult situations when they're vulnerable like that. Um, is there, what, 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 were there conversations about how those conversations can turn into, you know, not just that women are blocked out of it, but they're, they can be pre- predatory towards them? Yeah, I mean, sexual harassment was a huge topic at the convention. Um, it, you know, uh, the women gathered in Detroit just um, really a few days after the Me Too campaign on social media had really been cresting. Um, so it really came up a lot. Um, Rose McGowan was there and spoke, and Tarana Burke, who actually founded the Me Too campaign um, 10 years ago, um, 
they both spoke on this and it really came up on a lot of panels. Um, it didn't come up necessarily specifically in terms of, you know, the relationship between donors and office seekers, but I will say something that a lot of women running for office talked about is establishing more female-dominated networks. So, for instance, Mallory McMorrow, who I talked to, um, had done a training through a group called Emerge America, um, and she went through that training with, I think, 22 other women who are also interested in state office in Michigan. And she really described that as a way to kind of make a little bit of, um, you know, like a like a girls club kind of, you know, instead of this old boys club, right, you know, they have these alternate networks and um, these ways of relying on women, hopefully, as they all kind of move up through elective office. Did you see at all any difference between Republican women that were interested in running and Democratic women that were interested in running in terms of, I mean, we're talking about raising money, but was one group maybe having an easier time than another? Or were you seeing sort of this cross-pollinization of issues that both were having when it came to just one, getting out there, but two, really running a successful campaign and being, you know, elected into office? Um, yeah, so I think in terms of um, in terms of fundraising and things like that, I think Republican and Democratic women face a lot of the same obstacles. Um, there's some interesting research by the Barbara Lee Family Foundation um, that suggests that voters maybe respond to Republican and Democratic women a little differently. Um, actually, it's it's good news for a lot of female candidates because, at least according to this uh, survey that the foundation did, um, there are aspects of being a woman running for office that can actually kind of counteract some stereotypes that people have about the two parties. So, for instance, um, voters uh, tend to not trust Republican candidates as much as Democrats on the issues of education and health care. But if you're a woman um, and you're a Republican candidate, you kind of erase those mistrusts a little bit. So voters uh, might tend to trust a Republican woman as much as they would trust like a Democratic man on those issues. Um, and for Democratic women, there's also... Um, some advantages. One thing is that um, uh, Democratic men are maybe less likely to be perceived as like a political outsider, um, but a Democratic woman can have an easier time being perceived in that way. So Republican women are more easily seen as outsiders. Democratic, uh, Democratic women. women. Oh, Demo- do you, why? Why? Why is that? Do you think? I think maybe because women are still always, uh, they start out a little bit as an outsider to the political mm-hmm. process. You know, representation is still, um, I believe it's like about 19% of Congress yeah. are, are women. So it's pretty low. But why would it be Democratic women versus Republican? I have my own theories about that, which have to do with the Republican ideal of, uh, you know, Religion, um, I think people tend to be more inclusive when you speak this language of prayer and church and religion. That's not a bad thing. I mean, I'm a religious person, too. And maybe money. Uh, Maybe it comes down to, like, you know, we come from these sort of wealthy families. Oh, one of us is going to start to run? Great. Um, Let's be more inclusive. But it's interesting that there is that— discrepancy that Democratic women seem to be more of an outsider. So why so much the separation of the of the parties? Um, well, so this particular survey um, worked by kind of pitting Democrats against Republicans. So they tried to emulate the way that a typical general election would go, where usually it's a Democrat versus a Republican. So they asked voters, you know, 
Do you prefer, you know, let's think about a Democratic woman versus a Republican man, or let's think about a Democratic man versus a Republican woman? So I think that's maybe why you're seeing um, some of the party split there. Um, I'm not sure, for instance, if um, like Republican women are more likely to be perceived as outsiders than Democratic women. That would be an interesting um comparison to make. And I mean, the survey didn't go into sort of, uh, didn't have qualitative data talking to specific respondents about why they made those choices, but that would certainly be interesting too. And are are there divides on the progressive side? Uh, I think in in the way that there are on the Republican side, um, you know, you talk about healthcare, you talk about jobs, but are there divisive issues? Definitely. I mean, um, it's been interesting to see the uh, the Women's March sort of evolve as a movement a little bit, um, because when it sort of first came on the scene in January of this year, um, there were a lot of divides among people who um, were planning to attend or not planning to attend. And in particular, I think um, there were a lot of criticisms that um, the Women's March sort of centered white women and white women's concerns and there was a lot of wondering about like, well, if, you know, if white women come out for this march, are they going to come to the next Black Lives Matter rally? You know, are they going to support people who care about mass incarceration? You know, are they going to support women whose whose sons are incarcerated? You know, are are they supporting men who are... um, who are being victimized by by the government in different ways. Um, and the convention really addressed those divides pretty head on. There was, um, you know, several specific panels that were about looking at white feminism and white womanhood and how can white women be, um, you know, more mindful of having their outlooks be inclusive of issues that are affecting women of color and men of color. Um, so, I mean, those remain, um, those remain some big divides, but it was interesting to see the convention, um, really look at them and and try to bridge them. Yeah. I mean, I I was, uh, at the convention. I, I I wish I would have seen, I've have had seen you. Um, but, um, I was really impressed by, um, just the level of conversation and the uh, diversity in terms of topics, in terms of perspectives and, uh, panelists and, you know, whether it's, it's, it's race, disability, um, feminist. I mean, it was just a really, really, it felt very intersectional. So I was not at the convention, but my question is, there's a lot of talk about all this intersectionality. Were there any solutions to the problem of the fact that the feminist movement is in some ways fractured? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, so basically the um, the whole sort of ending program on Sunday of the convention um, was kind of devoted to next steps and, and solutions. And um, I mean, you mentioned money earlier. So one really concrete, um, you know, step forward that uh, one, one of the panelists specifically talked about was kind of putting your money where your mouth is. And that includes donating to female candidates. But she also talked about, um, you know, for instance, consider... Uh, you know, whether or not you're Black, consider banking with a Black-owned bank. She talked about how Black families and Black-owned banks were hit especially hard in the financial crisis, um, you know, and that you can make those decisions about where your money goes, and that can actually, um, you know, help to boost Black communities. Um, you know, and then she talked about supporting candidates of color and um, causes that benefit um, benefit Black communities also. But I thought that sort of... Um, I thought the comment about Black-owned banks was really interesting um, because I'm betting that, um, you know, for a lot of white attendees at the conference, they might not have necessarily considered that. 
Thank you so much, uh, Anna North, for joining us and for uh, providing us with this really, really interesting dispatch from the Women's Convention in Detroit. Everyone should go check out her work at Vox.com. Sure. Thanks, Thanks, Anna. Thanks, Anna. That's it for today's show. If you like what you heard, tell a friend about the podcast. And if you want to get in touch, send us your comments and show ideas. Our email is divided at voxmedia.com. And you can find my Comcast watchable show at dividedstatesofwomen.com. Divided States of Women is executive produced by David Goodman, Heatha Herzog, Nishat Kurwa, and me, Liz Plank.